Hello and welcome to Tech Shop from Parent Zone, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life for parents, teachers, professionals, and policymakers. I'm Vicky Shopbolt, and I'm the founder and CEO of Parent Zone. And I'm Geraldine Bedell, the executive editor of Parent Zone. This week, we're delighted to welcome Charles Arthur, author of a new book, Social Warming, which is subtitled The Dangerous and Polarising Effects of Social Media. And it's an excellent analysis of how and why we got to our current dysfunctional relationship with social media. Charles is an old friend and colleague. He was technology editor of The Independent when I was working there. And he was at The Guardian when I was at its sister paper, The Observer. And he's spoken at a Parents' Zone conference in Digital Parenting Week in the past. So we're delighted to see him again, or rather not see him because this is audio and we're recording it from different parts of the country. Hello, Charles. Welcome. Thanks for the welcome. Great to be, great to be with you. Good. It's a very nice metaphor, social warming, and there are obvious parallels to global warming and the climate crisis. And I wondered if you could kick off by explaining why you decided to frame it like that. Sure. The the thing that got me interested in it was I was I was doing a talk in 2017. I was asked to do a talk about technology and politics. Which one affects the other more? Um, and obviously, there had been the election in uh, November 2016 of Trump, which had been decided by really tiny vote margins in three key states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And the margins have been a few tens of thousands of votes in each of them. And in each of those states, uh, the Trump campaign had focused very heavily on Facebook as a, as, a, as a campaigning measure, aiming to get people to either vote for Trump or not vote for Clinton. And although, you know, there are millions of votes cast, I felt that there might be a, a question about the social media having had this little tipping effect that a, that a change doesn't have to be big uh, in order to have a big effect. So it's rather like when you get water goes at zero centigrade from being ice to being water. It's not a big change in temperature, but it's a big change in, in what you're actually dealing with. And so I started to look more closely at the way that social media seemed to be affecting the world and the ways that uh, these these small changes could be perceived as having big effects, that as you go from a world that has no smartphones, no social media, to one where they're pervasive, the sort of effects on society I thought were, were really interesting to, to try to draw out. Um, first to look at the, the roots, and then also to, to see the effects. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of framing it, actually, that when we talk about um, social media we quite often and as lots of people do talk about the amplification effect and the fact that you know one person has the ability to tweet something and it can reach hundreds of thousands but that idea that social media could just be causing small changes in society that are actually acting as tipping points is a really interesting way of framing it I think. I wonder do you do you agree with that analysis that the underlying problem is that social media platforms aren't publishers and that if something's been uploaded, uh, you know, they, they don't have any say over whether or not it's published as such. They just say, you know, the world, the world can go on our platform and publish what they like. Would changing them into publishers make them take a little bit more responsibility for those moments when they can be acting as a tipping point, do you think? Well, this was the problem that the, the, the that sort of faced the internet in a sense that faced websites really um, back in the 1990s uh, when there were a couple of important lawsuits in America 
Um, one involved AOL and another one um, involved a, a, a communications company, a, a Disney in effect. Um, and in the AOL one, they didn't moderate comments on a, on a site. And when someone tried to hold them liable for, for libel for what was being written there, they could say, well, you know, we, all we do is provide the, the place for someone, someone to write someone. Uh, and with the Disney one, uh, there was a similar lawsuit, but because they did do some moderation, um, they were liable. And that led American senators to realize that if you had that sort of um, standard implemented everywhere, that if you moderated, you'd be liable in the same way as a publisher is, as you know, the editor in a paper chooses what is what is in the paper. And so they choose what sort of things are included and excluded, and they become liable for, for what's printed. If you did this with websites, then everyone would be terrified to moderate in case they then got sued. And that would actually lead to the worst outcome because you'd get pornography, you'd get you know stolen content, you'd get all, all of the worst things. So there had to be some way of, of squaring the circle, of, of letting websites moderate stuff but not be liable for what's put up there in the first place. Uh, and that was... Um, solved, if you'd like, by um, what's now a sort of fairly famous piece of, uh, small piece of a bigger piece of legislation that was called the Communications Decency Act, which mostly fell. Um, but what remains of it, in effect, is a bit called Section 230, which allows websites to remove content after the fact if they basically, if they don't like it, and it's very much in their, in their own choice whether they can keep it or get rid of it. Um, but that they're not immediately liable for what goes up there. And I feel that this is actually a, a, a good solution. And the trouble with the publisher option of saying, well, you're a publisher, just like a newspaper, is that there's no way on earth that you could actually get uh, any website that would have sufficient um, staffing to ever be able to moderate. I mean, YouTube gets colossal amounts of video uploaded every second. And if you had to go through all that before you put it up, well, you know, you, you just wouldn't have anything functional. And while that might satisfy us in terms of, well, you know, this is this is great because we're not seeing anything that's, uh, you know, libelous or whatever. Actually, it's it's such a difficult judgment call that that you start to think that maybe it would be better just to take the risk and, you know, maybe deal with a few lawsuits and let more things go up. And actually, that's probably what would tend to happen is that the big organizations, rather as happens with newspapers, Big newspapers can often print things which are in effect libelous and they just pay a little bit of money to make people who complain go away. Um, so, so I think you'd see the big websites do the same and effect, effectively you'd get the same outcome anyway. But Section 230 enshrined it in law and lots of other countries have uh, chosen the same sort of route. So, uh, I mean, the, the shorter answer to your question, if we just made them all publishers, would it be better? No, it wouldn't. You'd actually just move to a, a hybrid solution like we have now. On the other hand, it has led to a position where the platforms take the view, are able to take the view, that if someone's posted it, however libelous or egregious it may be um, it should be published and we'll perhaps go on to talk about the algorithms and what then gets amplified but could we could we sort of look at that first of all through the lens of children because you've written about the tragic case of Molly Russell and you quote her father saying I have no doubt that social media helped kill my daughter 
and you're careful to write in a balanced and nuanced way. But I sense you think he's right about that. I should point out the 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 chapter that um, that you're quoting from about Molly Russell didn't doesn't actually appear in the book. Um, no. <laughs> I did write that, um, but for space reasons. Um, we we left it out, and so I did do a whole. It's a very good of... chapter, though. <laughs> maybe I should maybe I should put it on Amazon or something. As yeah, a Kindle, just, you know, just publish special it extra. separately. Um, yeah, it's certainly for children. I mean, I've I've criticised um, the the big companies, particularly YouTube, down the years, because they all have this bizarre way of treating the world as though uh, everyone is the same until they're 12 that is they can't use your services then they're all the same between 12 and 18 and then they're all the same once they're over 18 and this idea that between the ages of 12 and 18 you can show them exactly the same stuff um, seems to me a really surreal way of, of treating the world that it's that it's chopping us into such such sort of blunt uh, chunks, if you like, that uh, it, it's not how it's not how development really happens. Um, and to deal with the Molly Russell question, yes, she was a child who uh, was on Instagram, um, committed suicide, and it was found that her Instagram feed was full of um, posts with suicidal ideation, um, and that she was being suggested more and more of these. Uh, and that an email arrived from Instagram sometime after her death, which said, we, we see you haven't been on Instagram for a while, which is always, of course, distressing. And, and then it sort of said, and here are some suggested posts for you. And those were, you know, these sort of suicidal ideation things. Certainly Molly Russell's father is is very much of the opinion that this was, that her ideations were reinforced by social media. And that this is where, you know, algorithms come in, that the algorithms are always watching what sort of things you show some interest in and then trying to feed you more. Because for them, you being on the service for longer is an ideal outcome. Um, obviously, they're not very good at understanding what happens if someone dies and they try to bring them back from the dead, which not even algorithms can do yet. Two huge questions there. One about algorithms but but this other question which I think is is front of many people's minds at the moment about age ratings age gatings and the responsibility that platforms have to make sure that the people on those platforms are indeed the age that they say they are in the last couple of weeks we've had the um, children's code come into force in this country and platforms saying that they've made changes which are not directly resulting from that code but are um, interestingly coincidental do you think that children's code is is going to modify online experiences for all users? Is it a good thing? Is it? I have concerns about it because it sets the age of a child as eighteen. So underneath eighteen, you'll have one experience. Over eighteen, you'd have a different one. Is that too blunt? Um, I'm sensing from what you were saying earlier that, that that probably is. But is it at least a step in the right direction? I, I think it is a. It's definitely a good step in the right direction in making the. The platforms think about how do they verify who's using them? How do they make sure that these people are not underage? Because I, th I think that it does also uh, require them to make sure that people are over the age at which they're allowed to use the, net, the, the systems, which I think is 12 or 13. It can, it can vary a little. And certainly in the past few weeks, uh, Instagram in particular has 
put out um, blog posts saying, oh yeah, by the way, you know, everyone around the world, um, we're going to try to figure out what age you are. And if we think you're under a particular age, then we're going to limit what your account can do. This is all directly because of the UK's action. Um, so the, the UK doing this, because the UK is a quite an important market outside the US for all these services, that has that's having a direct effect, which is going to feed back into the way that all the other platforms do it. So, so even if you have reservations about uh, its limits in terms of how it partitions the world, I think it's definitely a, a very positive thing. And uh, Alex Hearn and the Guardian has written about this. He, you know, he he thinks that it's definitely having an effect on the uh, on the companies, and I I see no reason to disagree with that. I think it's it's a definite positive step forward, making sure that you actually verify who people are verify their age in whatever ways you can because you know, you'll see it through the sorts of things that they like the life experiences they describe the friends they have all these are clues to how old someone is if someone claims to be you know 27 and yet they're sort of you know crazy about uh, you know the youngest korean boy band and uh, celebrating someone's 12th birthday then you might actually get a clue that this is not quite the, the person that they say they are you quote data from the United States Happiness Index, which I think shows that until about 2011, children always ended their teens happier than they started. Um, and that is no longer the case. And that is that does coincide with um, children's use of social media. And I wondered to what extent you think that's related yeah, this again. This is in the the, uh, the sort of the missing chapter, I guess we could call it. Um, there's some some data from this this happiness index which quizzes children about their feelings as they as they go over time, and uh, it sort of dips as they go through sort of their mid secondary years, and generally ends up uh, with them expressing more happiness. And I, I sort of disaggregated it and pulled it back together to try to look at how it looked over the, over the years because it's not it doesn't come out obviously at first that the happiness index seems to just sort of bump along. Um, so what I did was to try to track backwards and say, well, okay, but as a cohort, how do these children look? And as you as you say, um, up until about 2011, which is about the sort of time that smartphones really started to penetrate, that Facebook was really starting to become a thing, that uh, Twitter was really starting to become a thing. Up until that point, um, yeah, they they'd always you know by the time they reached sort of 17 or 18, they would express themselves as being happier than they had been at 12 or 13, and now that seems to be going away. Now correlation is not causation just because two things go up together or down together doesn't mean that the one causes the other but it is it is a striking possibility that uh, it's actually the availability of social networks of seeing other people sort of having the great parties and having a great time and having a wonderful life makes you feel that your progress is less great than theirs is that there can only be, you know, there can only be one US Open champion and there have to be 127 losers. And what do you know, you're in the 127 losers sort of thing. That possibly the ability to see yourself in, in this context isn't a great thing for us. That that for the younger mind, it uh, it's actually more debilitating than it is, um, you know, delighting. Um, 
and and there's no sense that the social networks give you any way to to navigate this. They just present it to you. They just feed more of it to you because that's how the algorithms work. That they're much more about well, what's the thing you seem to be interested in? Successful people, you know, Kim Kardashian. Sure, we'll we'll show you a lot more of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be very happy about your lot compared with Kim Kardashian's. I mean, there is one other possibility that I've thought about in the in the time since actually writing that, which is that um, the message about the climate crisis, which you know, <laughs> resonates with the book, um, that that message has also been getting um, more noticeable. But I, I feel that in the United States in particular, that that message possibly isn't as as loud for teenagers as maybe it would be for someone like Greta Thunberg. So I do suspect that there is a correlation here and and that uh, some more academic research might be able to tease it out. That is quite a, I mean, I was, I was going to say quite a controversial position, and I don't think it is a controversial position. I think there are lots and lots of people who are making that connection between social media and children's unhappiness. We did some research with young people about that very question a while ago now, and they were extraordinarily balanced. They said that on the one hand, yes, there were some platforms that could make you feel really miserable if you were already starting to feel slightly miserable. They weren't great places to be, but equally there were places that could make you feel much better and actually the internet had given them opportunities to to cheer up, if you will. And I do, you know... It's terribly easy, isn't it, to say, well, clearly, 2011 social media, that's the thing that we connect. I think the same thing happens with screen time. And again, those those links are really controversial. One of the things you do is distinguish between girls and boys, which is really interesting because they so often get lumped together in this debate. What was your conclusion about about that and, and particularly the effect of screen time on their well-being? Yeah, there's there's lots of studies and data. And as you say, they do tend to lump girls and boys together. They just say, well, here's a whole bunch of teenagers, you know, he's 12 to 15 or 12 to 16. And here's screen time. And, and here's this, this graph, which goes absolutely nowhere. Therefore, there's no effect. And, and you have to be a bit more granular than that, because boys and girls do use uh, these systems in different ways. Um, boys tend to prefer playing video games, and those become their sort of social platforms. Um, they use them, they communicate, you know, while they're in games. Um, you know, they have headsets and they'll be playing shoot 'em ups or whatever, um, or they'll be doing cooperative things like uh, Nintendo Splatoon, and they'll they'll be you know talking to each other, they'll be joshing each other. It's it's a way of meeting, and I know that you know I've got children who uh, one's one's still a teenager, I've got another one who's just come out of being a teenager, and that was very much how they how they do it. You know, for for boys particularly, um, video games are actually a meeting place. They're they're a way to interact socially. Uh, and in that sense, they can be dynamic. They're actually real-time conversations. They're not typing things. They're not um, dealing with someone who's who's sort of unknown and un- unseen. It's actually with with people who they know. Whereas for girls, um, they they tend not to be big games players. They tend much more to be. Uh, I guess you could almost say performative on social media that it's that it becomes um, you know very much as as you'd sort of expect it's a it's a way to sort of say who you're with to to show your your status to um, to, to sort of demonstrate what you've done to find your friends to 
bond with your friends. And so in that respect, girls and boys use social media or, or just or just you know interact online very differently. And the girls seem to be more affected by it than the boys when it comes to excessive screen use. And the, the other thing that emerges from all the data that's out there is that there are sort of sweet spots that you get people, children who are less happy when they have pretty much zero screen time. They just they seem to feel left out. And then you get a, a sort of sweet spot where you get a sort of a, a, a maximum happiness, both for girls and boys, when, the, when they're doing sort of one to two, two and a half hours a day. And then you get an increase in unhappiness as the screen time goes up. So you have this sort of dip. And as, as you're going up towards five, six, seven, eight hours a day, which, uh, which you can see in some cases, these are children who seem to be very unhappy. Now, again, this isn't. This may not be a you know a causation thing. It may not be that that the time spent online is making you happy. Maybe that you're unhappy, and so you spend time online because there's no one to talk to. You have no friends. All your real friends are online. Um, but again, you you have to feel that there's this lack of uh, of satisfaction with the real world, uh, particularly among girls, and it's it's more marked among girls the, the unhappiness. Um, with excess screen time than it is for boys. Yes, that's the Goldilocks hypothesis, isn't it? Which um, I think is, uh, it, it seems very plausible. I mean, the problem for platforms is that they can always use this kind of evidence to say, well, it's not us, Gov, you know, um, we're we're simply neutral. And um, sort of going back to the children's code a bit, you, um, you say in that chapter, which didn't quite make it into the book, um, that in the past we've told parents and children to report to platforms when they come across things that upset them online. But you say, really, you don't think that that's enough because, then, because the platforms are not really motivated to do anything about it. Do you think legislation, whether it's the children's code or the online safety bill, um, is going to alter that without changing the fundamental business models of the of the companies. Well, legislation always concentrates the minds of these companies wonderfully. It works a hell of a lot better than self-regulation because with self-regulation they have no interest actually in in changing their behavior so that they you know, so that they do it for the benefit of of the uh, of the users, the wider benefit. I mean it's it's what it's what economists call the externalities, you know. Uh, if you have a, a cement plant or something by the side of a river, um, if you just allow them to dump any old waste into the river, then they're going to do that. You know, they don't care. They don't care that the people downstream don't have drinkable water. But if you fine them mightily, you know, to more than 100% of their revenue every time they put waste into the river, they're going to make very, very sure that they don't put any waste into the river. You know, you, you uh, alter their behaviour and the externalities um, through, the, through the simple fact of legislation. And... That's very much what the the social media companies are now coming round to understand, is that uh, in multiple countries, governments are looking at what they're doing and they're saying, well, actually, we we don't think you're doing you're not an unalloyed good, um, you know, for all the all the fact that you are enabling you know people to organise their Saturday morning kids club, uh, you're also enabling terrorists to organise, um, you know, you're you're enabling people to be racist and to you know throw out hate speech of people, uh, you're not moderating it well, therefore, actually, we are going to take some action on this. Um, so even if it does alter the business model of the social networks, I, I don't believe it will. I mean, their, their business model is show people lots of content, show them adverts in the middle, um, take the money from the adverts, 
try to make sure the money you take from the adverts is bigger than the money you spend on on showing the people content. I mean, you know, that's a pretty simple business model, which has been used by everyone from TV stations to radio stations going on backwards, you know, including newspapers, really. Um, that's not going to change. Um, but what is going to change is is going to be the balance between how much do we spend on showing people the content, how much do we spend on making sure that the you know content we don't want to get shown or that we'll get in trouble for showing doesn't get uh, doesn't get shown to people, and how do we make sure that we get plenty of money from the adverts? Even so, you know that that fundamental tension between how much they spend on on showing people the content and how much money they get from the ads that's that's going to remain but it seems to be okay for facebook um and uh, twitter seems to be just about rubbing by on it so so you have to feel that there's uh, no great risk to them in, in, the, in the near term i find that really interesting actually that that you think that um the basic business model is is unlikely to change because there are signs on there that of some change so you we're seeing platforms like OnlyFans emerge where in-stream payment is the thing that's driving it and what the platforms are doing is taking a small percentage of um, every creator's income and and then you look at how Facebook are moving to a fully encrypted model which will make their advertising revenue model much more difficult and less sustainable which makes me think that those business models are going to have to evolve Um, and I wonder whether or not we are once again in the situation where policymakers are trying to regulate an internet that is probably changing under their under their toes and they, they're not really aware or they're not adequately up to date with how those changes are going to play out. Well, the emergence of, uh, of OnlyFans and similar sites where you can pay creators directly. And, yeah, we've seen things like that in the music industry through places like Bandcamp and so on. Um, that, as a phenomenon, it's I think it's a response to the inflexibility of the social media platforms, that it was difficult to monetize through them for those creators. Uh, I mean, they've been on YouTube for, for a long time, after all, but obviously YouTube is not going to allow them to do the, the sexualization stuff. Um, the, the, the challenge for Facebook doesn't really come from OnlyFans because, again, the, the question for, for OnlyFans people is, well, how do you spread your message? Um, you know, taking out an advert on Facebook, which is you know, tightly targeted perhaps to the people you want to hit, um, it may actually be a more effective, more effective one than simply having a page on OnlyFans because all that happens there is you're competing with every other person on OnlyFans and, and you know, is that really where you're going to get the, the best hit? Uh, like I say, I mean, you know, the, the, the way that Facebook... Uh, runs its model, um, which, like I say, is, is you know in common with newspapers, radio, TV. Um, that's that's a pretty effective model. Uh, it really works really well. They're very effective at the targeting part, and um, the encryption for for Facebook Messenger. Well, I, I I don't think. I mean, they've never really shown adverts in Facebook Messenger. It's just on the main Facebook site that they've gone for it. And and WhatsApp, after all has no uh, revenue model and that's end-to-end encrypted again. So, you know, that's not a great loss for them. They're, they're not losing anything through that. But, you know, through Facebook and Instagram, through the through the adverts that they show in in the stream, that's, that's still a powerful model because they are able to target better than any other company in that space. And... Um, the, the whole OnlyFans thing, well, again, that, that comes down to regulation. That comes down to how well... 
governments can say to OnlyFans, okay, we're going to make sure that you actually, um, you know, only show this stuff to people who are of the correct age. And there was a kerfuffle a few weeks ago when it seemed like OnlyFans was going to tell all its um, all its porn creators to uh, to go find another home. Um, which seems to be something to do with the credit card industries not being very happy. Who, who then reversed that uh, that position? It's not quite clear what uh, what happened. And possibly the the credit card industry decided that actually they take quite a lot of money from the porn industry already, and what's a, a few more million here or there. So, I I, I again I, I just don't see the the model changing. I don't see the Facebook and Instagram models shifting for anyone. And um, I think TikTok is moving towards the same sort of thing. It's, it gets lots of attention. It's going to start showing adverts and uh, it'll be able to tailor the adverts very well because it's very, very good, possibly even better than Facebook, at uh, figuring out what it is that people want to see. You have a nice metaphor about a car crash in the book, whereby if you see a car crash, you look because everybody slows down and looks when there's a car crash. But social media assumes that you like car crashes when you when you do that, and it sends you more car crashes and then more extreme car crashes. And um, there's a kind of amorality about that, which has led a lot of people to, to call for a kind of radical um, dismantling, if you like, of social media or some sort of ra- radical action on that kind of behaviour. Um, I, I'm interested that you think that that business model can be rebalanced without that sort of radical attack on on the sort of amoral targeting that we're seeing at the moment. I'd separate between the algorithm and the advertising targeting. They're, they're two quite separate things. So there's, there's an algorithm, which whenever you go on Facebook, uh, is there, there are all sorts of little uh, sort of bits of code running underneath the page, in effect, which are looking at, well, okay, so what what things are you looking at? What do you spend the most time on? What do you respond to in your comments? What do you click through on? And from all those, it's able to build up a profile of what are the things that you are interested in. This may be different from, you know, your declared interest in music or in sports or on newspapers or whatever. It, it's actually, you know, what do you pay attention to? Um, and the algorithm is trying to maximize the time that you spend on Facebook, because if you don't spend time on Facebook, they can't show you adverts. And if they can't show you adverts, they don't get the money. The algorithms aren't actually necessary for the existence of Facebook. When Facebook started out, it just showed the latest thing that people had posted. Um, You 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 chose your friends um, and it would show you the latest things. And that sort of model of just showing you stuff that's just been posted is, you know, almost as old as the web itself. There have been web forums around, you know, specialist interest things. You know, if, you, if you're into fixing Massey Ferguson tractors or something, you could find a special interest forum where people were talking about fixing Massey Ferguson tractors. No algorithms underneath it. It's not saying, well, I wonder which version of the Massey Ferguson tractor you're really interested in fixing. No, it just shows you all, all the things you pick it out. And they could show some adverts in between that. Um, so to those, the algorithm, the, the attention algorithm is not necessary to Facebook. It's not absolutely essential. Helps it a hell of a lot because it keeps people stuck to it, but it's not actually essential. The targeting of ads, though, is a different thing. That's all about, well, what are your, what are your declared interests? Which part of it comes from uh, the attention algorithm? Part of, part of that does get fed in. But it's also about, you know, how old are you? Um, what do we know about where you live? What car you have? Uh, what's, do you own your house? 
Uh, are you married, divorced, single, you know, whatever? Uh, do you have children? Uh, are you going to have children? You know, there's, there's a colossal list of, of little data points that Facebook knows about you, which it gets from credit card companies as much as anything, uh, as well as the data that you tell it about. Um, I think it's a list of something like 96 different data points that you can be mapped out on. And um, from all of this, it can decide when advertisers come to it and say, OK, we'd really like to um, hit people who own classic cars, who live in Montana, are divorced uh, and have an income of over $100,000 a year. You know, someone comes to Facebook and does, wants to do that because they think that's their target market. Facebook says, yep, fine. Well, you know, how many of these people do you want us to show it to? Here's how much it'll cost you. And that's how they do the targeting of adverts. Um, but the targeting of content, the, the non-advertising content, is uh, is very subtly different. And that's that's very much driven by, uh, driven by the algorithm. Whether it would ever tone down the algorithm, the attention algorithm, um, is questionable because for the social networks, attention is everything. You know, we live in the attention economy. There's only 24 hours in the day. That's the maximum amount of time you can spend watching things on Facebook. Um, and it's rather like, you know, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix, said, you know, he said, well, we see our main competitor is being sleep. You know, it's all these damn people not watching Netflix. Um, in the same way, you know, that's that's one of the competitors for Facebook. And the other is all the social networks in the world. Because, you know, the Twitters and the TikToks and the, you know, the LinkedIn's and the, well, not Instagram, I guess. Um, but all of those, they're, they're trying to take time away from Facebook. And uh, time is money in that sense. So, uh, yeah, it, it's important to distinguish between the uh, the attention algorithm and the, the advertising targeting because they're, they're two fairly separate things. That's a really sobering thought, isn't it? That the the real competitor to to Netflix is um, is sleep. I think that that's probably. I know I've sacrificed some of my sleep um, over the last eighteen months watching Netflix. Um, one of the other things that you talk about in your book is this idea of scissor statements, which is quite difficult to say. Uh, can you explain that and how that leads to what you describe as a purity spiral? So scissor statements is actually a phrase that I came across uh, in a in a sort of little uh, short story by a guy called Scott Alexander, who runs the Slate Star Codex blog. Um, he's a psychiatrist, and uh, it was just a little, little throwaway idea of his, which was, what if he had a system which um, came up with with statements that will split people into the pros and the antis, you know, whatever the statement is, doesn't greatly matter, but just something that cleanly cleaves people into these two camps, which are completely opposed because they think, no, this, this is completely wrong. And the other bank camp thinks, no, no, this is completely right. The fascinating thing is that you can see them being bred, uh, these statements. You can see them come around and, and gain primacy on social networks because the the way that social networks and particularly social the way that social warming happens. Um, this is sort of important prelude. I'll get on to I'll get back to social statements, but let me just explain it. So, as humans, we have an inbuilt tribalism. It's what uh, helped us to survive when we went through a sort of a, a pinch in in the numbers of. Uh, living humans a couple of million years ago. You had to be part of a tribe because the tribe together could do more things than the individuals could. So tribalism is very important. Uh, being thrown out of the tribe is pretty bad news. It could mean that you're going to die. So tribalism, all being all recognising that you're in a tribe, recognising the people who are not in the tribe is really important. It's very baked into us as, as a human reaction. Then you have outrage. 
outreach is the function by which you show that someone is not worthy of being in the tribe. And you, uh, yeah, when you see the person in the tribe doing something outrageous, like say stealing some of the food that you kept for winter, then your your outrage at them means that they can be ejected from the tribe if if they're found to have transgressed. So outrage is a really important reaction as well, and that's baked into us as well. However, as humans, we've evolved past the point where where you know our survival is at stake if you know we're not in the tribe. But we still have this reaction built into us. We still have tribalism and we still have outrage as a reaction. But now it's just done on social networks. So you see it all the time on Twitter. You see people uh, saying it's absolutely outrageous that the government is doing X, Y, and Z, or it's absolutely outrageous that um, you know Labour has done X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, if you if you look around for them, you'll see these outraged tweets, and you'll see the same on Facebook. You know, you'll see people being outraged and and shocked, and just uh, I cannot find the words to express about all these sorts of things all the time. And what happens with social networks is the algorithms find us doing this because it's a very deep personal reaction. It's the thing that we we do most quickly, and that we respond to most most deeply. The algorithms see this and say, wow, these humans really get engaged around this stuff. I'm going to show them more of it. So outrage gets amplified. And that's why social networks, sometimes you, you log on to Twitter or whatever, and it just seems to be teeming with people who are all angry about something. It might not even be the same thing. Um, they're all angry about all these different things. And you think, why is everyone so angry all the time? It's because the algorithms are amplifying the outrage that we're all expressing because you know, it's built into our, our DNA, in effect. And the thing that then makes it worse, the thing that just gets the social warming to tip over, is the lack of moderation. Because it's not in the network's interest to moderate this stuff. If people are all getting outraged and all you know, pointing fingers at each other and, and you know, hyping up the, the outrage with each other, um, that all counts as engagement. That, that's all these people being on Twitter, tweeting at each other. Um, and the algorithms can't tell. They can't tell that these... These are sort of nonsensical or stupid arguments or that people are being abusive. They, they just see it as engagement. They think this is great. And so they encourage it. They show it to people who aren't in the original argument and say, look at this really engaging tweet that people are engaging with. And more people get outraged. And so it all amplifies. So that's, that's the four-step process of social warming. So now scissor statements are statements which anyone sees them and they think, oh, I know which side of this I'm on. Um, you know, I agree completely with this person or I disagree completely with this person. So um, for example, of a, as a scissor statement, um, you'd have trans women are women. And you'll find that if you, if you put that on Twitter, there will be one group which will completely agree with you, one group will completely disagree with you. Um, another one that I've watched with interest um, sort of being turned into one uh, this year has been uh, critical race theory. You know, see an American write that and everyone who, every American who reads it will know exactly which side of the debate they're on. They probably don't know what the hell it's about. They couldn't describe it if they had to, but they know if they're for it or against it. And that's how scissor statements work. You can see them being bred on social media. You can see the sort of, you know, the little attempts for them and they, and they go away and they come back and they're, they're just very slightly differently phrased. And now they're much more divisive than they ever were before. And, and that's what scissor statements do. They, they have this effect of completely polarizing people who read them. And again, it, it amps up the engagement. You know, the, the algorithm loves it. Um, but whether they're actually good for, for people in terms of settling debate and allowing for the middle ground that actually, you know, you always have to find in any sort of um, solution for, you know, people living together, um, they're probably not. Mm -hmm.
I'm interested that you, going back to what you were saying earlier, make such a distinction between advertising and the algorithms, because you say it's not in the interest of companies to do anything about the algorithms, um, because that's promoting engagement. And that's why we have these scissor statements, because they generate such outrage. But doesn't that in the end come back to the advertising business model? Um, And it's because the the platforms are competing for our attention that they don't have a vested interest in in doing anything about that. Um, The online safety bill is currently going through parliamentary scrutiny. And um, on a sort of related note, that it's threatening to get sidetracked by debates about free speech. There is an argument that it's actually not really about people's right to say things. People have got every right to say things as much as they want, but they haven't got the right to get those things put in front of millions and millions of people just because they're outrageous or controversial or really provocative. So do you have a sense of whether the online safety bill is going to be up to tackling this kind of thing? God, it's it's so hard to say, isn't it? Because, I mean, the question is, what is the what is the thing that we're trying to prevent? Because to some extent, if you give everyone you know, a, a keyboard and access to the internet, then yeah, they're all, you, know, you, you really are going to get the sort of infinite number of monkeys effect. Um, and you know, some people really are going to be extremely unpleasant online. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you identify them, um, you know, because some people just revel in being unpleasant. You know, Facebook shows you that all the time. Again, you know, the, the difficulty is that Facebook Facebook standards of well, you know, things that you can say differs from the standards that might have applied in the in the UK. You know, there's this sort of um, uh, cultural imperialism almost of uh, in the way that the the big networks come over from America and in effect tell you what uh, what free speech means, um, which may be very different in the UK from what it is uh, in the US. Uh, and I always, I always feel a bit uncomfortable with that. And there's a whole chapter in the book, actually, about why uh, the effect of Facebook and smartphones arriving in Myanmar was so catastrophic because they had no concept of what the internet was. They had no concept of you know, what interacting with a website was for the most part. But they did find that Facebook was a great place to say what you thought about all the, uh, all the Rohingya. Um, and uh, that was very effective in being able to ferment unrest. So can the online harms bill really change the, the character of Facebook? I mean, uh, it, it's a pretty big ask. You're, you're asking a company that's got billions of dollars uh, at its disposal effectively to, to change its character. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's very much the sort of the, uh, the frog and the scorpion. Are you really going to trust you know, Facebook to, to ride on your back and, and not, be, uh, not, you know, not go ahead and just be the scorpion again? Just as a kind of final question from us, I guess, you, you talk a lot about democracy in the book and, and you don't sound very optimistic about what's going to happen if things go on as they are. Do you reach any conclusions about the best way to tackle these problems and maybe turn my pessimism into a little, a little more optimistic future? Well, again, I mean, uh, regulation, you know, actually bringing in laws is always going to have more effect on these companies than self-regulation because it's simply not in their interest uh, to regulate themselves in any way that's, that's effective um, around the harms that they do. You know, they've known about the harms that they do for years. Facebook recognised it in 2016. It had an internal report saying 
by the way, you know, our algorithm that, that sort of recruits people to groups, yeah, that's that's um, recruiting people to terrorist groups. Um, you know, they knew about this. They did so little about it that, in fact, it happened again in 2020 um, and recruited loads of people to go and storm the US Capitol. So you, know, can, you can see self-regulation doesn't work. So clearly then the answer is regulation. Um, and my suggestion, really, from observation of the differences between big networks and little networks, is that the problems with uh, any network of people, of users, grows geometrically as the size of the network grows linearly. So if you have uh, a group of 100 people, um, then there's a, you know, a certain number of interactions that they can each have. They can, you know, any... You know, interact in a particular number of ways. If you grow that group from 100 to 200 people, the number of potential interactions doesn't double. It goes up by four uh, because it goes up geometrically with the number of possible interactions. So as Facebook has gone from being, you know, 1 million to 10 million to 100 million to 1 billion to 2 or maybe 3 billion now, um, the number of possible interactions that it has to deal with and that it has to moderate and it has to try to deal with has just gone up exponentially. And the, the problems now are just far beyond its control. And my suggestion is that actually you legislate and you'd say to these companies, okay, you can't be bigger than a certain size. You know, in the US, you can't be bigger than 250 million users. That's, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty comprehensive number of people uh, for you to be. Um, and so Facebook, Facebook, uh, that's how big you can be. Yeah. And if you're going to go over 250 million, sorry, just can't do it, which sounds a bit radical, but uh, it's the sort of thing that you do for um, newspaper companies. Uh, you know, there's, there's rules about media, about how big you can be in particular countries. Uh, you can't be bigger than a certain size. And um, to some extent, the FTC in the US is trying to do this. It's trying to define Facebook as a monopoly. It's doing it very cack-handedly in how it's, def how it's describing what social media is. Um, but there are, you know, moves towards that sort of thing. And if you reduce the size of these networks, or if you limit their size, then you put a ceiling on the amount of moderation that they should have to do. And it's moderation, which is the key thing here. It's actually moderating the speech. It's keeping control of, uh, of the excesses that people will always go to when they're essentially given any chance um, to, to type things. And the other thing that um, that's slightly easier to do, which actually the networks could do, is to make it slightly harder to put content up. So on Twitter, one big change that happened in 2009 uh, was that before 2009, so from 2006, the first three years of uh, Twitter's life, uh, if you wanted to retweet something, you had to actually manually type it out or copy and paste it and put the person's name in front of it and add RT in front of it um, because there was no mechanism for just, you know, take this tweet and push it to all the users in my timeline. And when Twitter introduced that so that it was a single button, there were a lot of people who didn't like it. They said, no, we like the old version. We like the sort of the honesty of the old version a lot better. They felt it was almost rude to be pushing other people's tweets into the into your friends' timelines. And um, there have been some people who used to work at Twitter who now look at the retweet button and say, yeah, it's not so good, actually. We don't, we don't think it's had a great 
you know, a great benefit. And the same with the quote tweet, uh, which lets you sort of park a comment above someone else's tweet you know, and is constantly used basically to be rude about the person underneath. I'm not sure that's had a great benefit either. A lot of these things could be, they, they, they seem like great progressive steps, you know, now you can comment on someone else's tweet, but, you know, in effect, they're retrograde. So making it harder to do some of this content, making you maybe have to think a bit more or type a bit more before you can get it up there, that sort of friction all helps to make people a bit more considered about what they're doing. It's just adding this, are you sure... Thing to it, which Twitter already does, um, to give it some credit, when people just want to retweet a story, when they you know, sort of see a story link in their feed and they want to say, oh, oh I shouldn't send this to all my friends, Twitter will sometimes say, hang on, you haven't actually read that. Do you want to just go and look at it before you tweet it to all your friends? So you know, putting these sorts of barriers in the way of people just spraying stuff out there does have a benefit in making people a bit more reflective. And if anything has been shown over the past few years about social media, it's that we really need people to be quite a lot more reflective about what they put out there. So, yeah, legislate to make them smaller, but also make it just that little bit more difficult for people to put content up there. Uh, and I think we'd all actually reap the benefits. One of the things that we'd love to see at Parents Own is for the developers to have more professional responsibility for their own work in the same way that you would expect a bridge engineer to adhere to some standards, professional standards of building. We think that if you started to build that into the digital world, that you'd end up with professionals taking more accountability for the systems that they're building, which seems to us to be a, a possible forward um, option. Yes, that's that would be interesting. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of these things have patents on them and names are attached to them. But I guess if you could say, look, you patented this and it's actually caused harm, that would focus a few minds possibly. And certainly, if you know, if the retweet had a fun button had a had a sort of name attached to it somewhere, um, again, that could be that could be interesting. The difficulty is always that these things, you know, that they're two edged. That they're the technology is not good or bad, but neither is it neutral sort of thing, you know, that, that they can have good uses, but also they can have bad uses. And the difficulty becomes, well, which one do you do you take account? You know, which one do you take responsibility for? I'll, I'll take it for the good uses, thanks. You know, the bad uses, no, nothing to do with me. Um, and, and that's where the difficulty comes in trying to really lay down responsibility because you know everyone's going to be happy to take responsibility for the good stuff but the but the bad stuff they'll say yeah but that's that's the trouble with people you know people are just terrible that's back to your first point in a way that um it's actually very small things that can make a big difference i i think it's a very nice idea that the the technology is neither good nor bad but neither is it neutral and it's it's those points where it goes over into good or bad that are so difficult to locate and so difficult to do anything about really this this is the thing is is that um for all the the bad that social networks do you know they also do some good you know for, for journalists they can be a godsend they can they can find contacts who otherwise you wouldn't have known about i write in the book about the uh, the, the crash in the hudson river um which you know the plane crash which which was first on Twitter, yeah, that was really the first people got to see of it, and there was an actual picture attached, you know, well before any TV cameras or anything could be there. So that was a dramatic moment. 
Well, thank you very much, Charles. That was really, really interesting. And um, and we're very grateful that um, you came on and talked about your book, which is also extremely interesting and which I recommend. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Tech Shock from Parents Zen. I'm Geraldine Bedell. And I'm Vicky Shopwalt. Listen to Tech Shock every week on a Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to sign up, download, and please do give us a five-star rating so other people can be helped to find us. Well, that's my Monday sorted. Waggling practice. That's, um, that's my afternoon activity, practice my waggling.